They did the monster mash. They did the mash. It was a graveyard smash. They did the mash. It caught on like a flash. They did the mash. They did the monster mash. Welcome to Stupid Not Stupid Halloween Edition. The episode we're hoping will scare Jason straight and he'll finally stop handing out apples and celery sticks to trick-or-treaters. Come on, man. I got to do something with all those razor blades. <laughs> By the way, the cool thing about this Halloween episode, this is literally our 13th podcast. Wow, that is terrifying. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> so are you, how are you doing, man? Are you, uh, are you ready for Halloween? Everyone's favorite Celtic pagan holiday and the bane of Karen's everywhere? <laughs> I am totally stoked. Like, I've been wearing a mask for like eight months already. <laughs> uh, so what are we drinking tonight, Jason? So we are drinking uh, a, a beer that I love out of uh, Colorado. It's, a, a, it's a, a brewery that has finally gone national. Well, it probably went national about 10 years ago uh, uh, called Flying Dog. And we're drinking uh, an amazing IPA that they've got called Raging Bitch. Isn't it Raging Bitch Flying Dog? Isn't that the name of it? No, Flying Dog is the, the brewery. Oh, okay. I only pointed out because Raging Bitch and Flying Dog were our uh, matching Halloween costumes I thought we were doing <laughs> this year. All right, Jason. So last week we had our longest episode yet, uh, which means we probably made the most mistakes ever in the history of the podcast. We certainly did. All right. Well, that means it's time for... Matt and Jason are stupid. All right, so this is where we look back at the podcast from the week before and try to figure out everything that we got wrong. Do you want to go first, Jason, or how do you want to do this? I've got a few, so we can we can go back and forth, or how do you want to well, handle I it? I literally have a long <laughs> list. You have a long list. What I did is I got about 15 to 20 minutes into the episode, found a couple things that I said that I now know to be wrong, <laughs> and just got fed up with it and stopped listening. So, uh, Which I think is actually what most of our listeners do. <laughs> All right, well, you you kick it off and I'll just interject per usual. Okay, so the the funny thing for me about this list as I was going through this, the mistakes that I think everything I've got are mistakes that I made over the course of the hour plus. Oh, wait, so you didn't you don't have anything on your list that's a mistake that I, I made? I don't think that I do. Wow, okay, I only have mistakes. That that's kind of awesome in and of itself. I love people that are able to admit their own mistake. <laughs> Secondly, the thing that I, I love about this list of mistakes that I made is that they start small and as we drank more, they get more and more egregious, which is awesome. So the very first mistake I had, I mentioned to you, you would ask me uh, about the previous episode we'd done about the end of the world. Wait, did you make a mistake when we were talking about our mistakes from the episode before? Is that what you're about to tell no, me? No, but you had asked uh, like what my reaction had been after we had had the 40 minute discussion about how, all, how the world was going to end. And I had mentioned to you that I'd gone down to Savannah, Georgia, and had just drank myself silly for a week. What I did not include is that that was a socially distanced vacation. I stayed with family and I stayed in a different room and like a week. <laughs> so you drank alone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was very healthy. Yeah. <laughs> um, secondly, very early on, we were talking about the concept of uh, the study of Venus and its Venus, Venus, and its uh, incredibly dense atmosphere that has led to this radical heating of the the planet and as opposed to Mars, which, you know, doesn't have a, a magnetic field and as a result uh, has had its atmosphere stripped away. And we were talking about how that informed us about the concept of global warming. And I called it comparable planetology. 
later on, I actually did refer to it by the correct term, which is uh, uh, comparative. Comparative planetology. So I was listening today. I actually listened to the last episode in its entirety for the first time today, and I caught that. And it, it's just occurring to me now, I should have put that on my list. <laughs> See, so even in my defining my own mistakes, I'm still better than you. <laughs> <laughs> what else you got? So the next one, uh, we were talking about, again about uh, Venus and the the mission, the Magellan mission that mapped the surface of the mission. Uh, you made a comment, something about it being uh, that it had only flown flown past, and I was like, oh yeah, of course, it was totally a flyby mission. It's completely idiotic. You can't map a planet on a flyby. It was a totally, it was an orbital mission. It took years to get it into the orbit around Venus, and then it mapped something like eighty years. So wait, I don't want this episode to become another space episode, but. There was a number of Magellans, right? So, or there was a number of missions to Venus, and some of them missed and did fly. Those were the, yeah, those were the Mariner missions. Mariner missions, okay. Magellan flew in 1990, and it was an orbiter. Mariner, Magellan, whatever. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, so there were some that were flyby missions. I was trying to give you an out, Jason. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Accidental flybys. Um, The next mistake I made once we got to Mars, uh, we were talking about uh, the MAVEN mission, and I said something to the effect of uh, MAVEN had determined that uh, Mars had at one time had a magnetic field. That's incorrect. What MAVEN actually did was uh, map the rate at which the solar wind was stripping Mars of its atmosphere. And you were able to use that data to extrapolate into the past to show that Mars did at one time have some kind of a shield that kept the, the solar wind from stripping the atmosphere away. But the fact that that Mars had a magnetic field actually comes from data having to do with landers and rovers. The, other, the So then I made a, a really stupid mistake because clearly I think I was into my second drink at this point. Uh, and by the way, those were really big gin and tonics, which was astounding and made it a lot of fun. The standard glass size in the Renegar household. Right. Yeah. It was just like, you know, three pints. Uh, it's more of a bucket. <laughs> uh, I, I very uh, casually tossed into the conversation, uh, Curiosity, the Mars 2020 rover, uh, those are two different missions. Curiosity was launched in 2011. The Mars 2020 rover uh, is en route to Mars as we speak. It was launched in August, and its name is Perseverance. So that was just a, a boneheaded mistake on my part. My favorite one, very late in the episode, as we were really drunk, I, I said that Pluto was in the in the Oort cloud, which is astronomically far away from where it's actually located, which is in the Kuiper Belt. (laughs) (laughs) There were a couple of other uh, very, very small things that I wanted to bring up. I I thought we had discussed very early on about uh, Mercury being tidally locked with the sun. It didn't show up in the the final cut of the episode, which is- We need to fire our producer. Exactly. That guy's way overpaid. (laughs) Um, Anyhow, uh, it, it didn't show up early in the episode, which I don't think was a big deal. We did mention it later, uh, but that's that's a thing. And the final one that I was the most embarrassed about when I brought up a Futurama reference to the aliens that were going to raise the temperature of the planet Earth by a million degrees an hour until they got what they wanted, I said that they came from the, the planet Persei Omicron 8. In fact, I got it completely backwards. It's Omicron Persei 8. And that's just <laughs> incredibly humiliating to my geek credentials. This is a new low point for the yeah. show, Jason, definitely <laughs> with that one. Well, I, I only have two. Um, and I only have two because I only got through Mercury. And I was like, well, two's enough. And I'll quit. <laughs> so both of mine were in the first planet that we visited. Uh, on Mercury, I talked about earthquakes. Pretty sure they're not earthquakes on Mercury. That's my uh, Earth centrism right. coming yes. in. 
um, I guess, tectonic or seismic activity is right. what we would say. It's planet not quakes. It's on Earth. Yeah. yeah, planet quakes. So my bad on that one. And then I said that uh, it would be impossible to go from a liquid straight to a gas. And obviously it's not. Uh, sublimation uh, is a, a known phenomenon in physics. Happens every uh, day. <laughs> every day. Uh, the, the process of going straight from a, a solid to a gas without becoming a liquid in between, which I knew. Right. And uh, shouldn't have said, but I that's did. Right. I, I, it was one of those sort of, I, I, I can't remember. I had one like two episodes ago that uh, I said, and you didn't like stop me. <laughs> <laughs> like, Maybe I am right. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I guess we figured we'd keep it classic this week. And what we're going to be doing is taking a look at some of the most classic Hollywood monsters, uh, because it is uh, our Halloween episode. I'm hoping this is out before Halloween. <laughs> it should be. We'll see if we can get a new producer in time. I got to I gotta figure uh, out a theme song. <laughs> yeah. And so what we're going to do is dig through some of the classics and weigh in once and for all, which are stupid and which are just culturally appropriated metaphors used to scare children and drive GDP during the month of October. So. <laughs> I like that. So for the purposes of this conversation, we're, we're really limiting this. Like there are so many good monsters we could talk about, but we're really just looking at the, the very classic Universal Studios movie monsters. And even there, we're kind of limiting those. So the, the original slate started with the Phantom of the Opera back in the 30s and then included Dracula, uh, the movie Frankenstein, which is actually about Frankenstein's monster, uh, and we'll get into that discussion. The Mummy, it included The Invisible Man. We're not going to talk about that because I don't consider that a monster. And the, uh, uh, the Creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh, and The Wolfman. So we're looking at basically, we're, we're, we're probably not going to get into the Phantom of the Opera much, and we're definitely talk, not talking about The Invisible Man. So we've got the five classic movie monsters. All right. So where do you want to start? Uh, the Creature, Frankenstein's monster? Uh, sure. Let's do that, man. Well, this is the one I get hung up on the most because it's probably out of all the monsters that you named, either tied with Dracula for the most well-known or the, the one that people are most familiar with. And everybody calls it Frankenstein. That's right. Why is that wrong, Jason? Uh, because Frankenstein is actually Dr. Henry Frankenstein, the guy who creates the monster. That's and, right. Yeah. And it's not even called the monster in, in the novel. It's actually called the creature. Right. Uh, and the original title, I think it was called a Prometheus. <laughs> uh, it's something Prometheus. There's something more to the title. It's like something Prometheus. Right, but right. yeah. And uh, maybe we should give a little credit here. The person who's responsible for the title, which neither of us can remember, and is the uh, brain trust of the Frankenstein novel is Mary Shelley. Yeah. Uh, she published the work in 1818. She was a British author. And the rumor is that she got the inspiration for the novel after eating some bad shellfish. I think crab was which was what it was. And then she had a series of uh, nightmares. She was she was essentially in a, a two day food poisoning coma and had a, a dream that inspired the the creation of the creature in the novel Frankenstein. <laughs> which is funny because there's like an entire literature of rumor about uh, the creation of both Frankenstein and Dracula that took place over three nights in a summer villa somewhere in Europe where Mary Shelley and a friend of hers and her boyfriend who would later become her husband and a very famous figure by the name of Lord Byron were holed up in a house and there was a tremendous rainstorm that lasted like three days and they had no electricity, no air conditioning or anything. All they had was a bunch of liquor. Some old crab, apparently. <laughs> apparently some, yeah. Well, that, the lack of refrigeration. Yeah. And they sat around and talked about horror stories. Like this, they were sort of fascinated in, in and this was, this was like an 18, as you said, 1818. 
about the the concept of the new ideas in science and how those related to interesting ways of horror or the macabre. And Mary Shelley comes up with the Frankenstein novel. And one of the other people out of this, this foursome uh, writes a predecessor to uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula novel. So like the vampire and the Frankenstein monster basically come out of this one weekend that it was raining really hard and a bunch of rich people were really drunk, which is kind of fascinating. <laughs> so I, I guess I'm going to um, put the uh, creature ahead of the doctor here, and I'm going to come out ahead of time and just say straight up that I think that the Frankenstein monster is stupid. So I think we should be clear at the outset of this that we're talking about the monsters as they appear in Hollywood. Yes. And as Halloween costumes. And so that's when I say that I think this one is stupid, what I'm really saying is I think our contemporary depiction of it in pop culture is what's stupid. And the creature is actually interesting. Sure. No, no. And that's that's a really good point that we should clarify is, you know, what iteration of these monsters are we talking about? Because we started off talking about like the universal Hollywood monsters. So we I think that's probably the starting point is how they were portrayed in the original movies as opposed to the books or what have you. But I agree with you. Like the the portrayal of Frankenstein's monster is very different in the book than it is when it becomes a visual medium. So the, the Frankenstein monster that most of us are familiar with is a lumbering oaf incapable of speech or at least limited to single syllable words that is the personification essentially of brute strength, with all brawn and no brain, right. essentially. Well, it's basically a scientist created a zombie. And we've already talked about zombies, right? Like so, <laughs> But yeah, this is not a very effective zombie. The creature in the book, the creature as we know it today. So the creature that Dr. Frankenstein creates is built out of the best parts that he can find of each person in the city where he's putting this all together. So the strongest arms the uh, you know the longest torso to make it as tall as possible. And the most interesting piece is he finds the brain of the smartest person. So it's actually his mentor and teacher who dies. And so he finds the brain of this genius and puts that brain into the creature. And he, the, the doctor tries to do this several times before, and he couldn't find a brain of a high enough quality to make it actually work. So this is the brain that he gets to stick. Well, I think there was actually a mistake uh, in the book, I think that the doctor had absolutely been trying to find the best brain that was available, but he was relying on uh, individuals' uh, self-assessment, and he found a brain from someone who had claimed to be a very stable genius. <laughs> See, I just thought that I just thought that he was so smart that he was a Frank Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> so. The, the creature in Mary Shelley's novel is actually a bit of an intellectual, and that's what stands in such stark contrast to the Frankenstein that we see today. There's a whole portion, like the middle third of the book, where the creature lives in the forest and develops uh, a relationship uh, with a small child that uh, lives on their like summer estate there. It's where he learns about emotions and learns to read and learns to talk. And he's actually, this is the portion of the novel where he's not called the creature. He's referred to as the good fairy of the forest. Right. <laughs> for the, this whole portion of the novel. Um, and he actually has some pretty profound quotes throughout the length of the book. So I picked out two of my favorites, which, which I think encapsulate uh, the true essence of the creature and not the creature as we know it today. So I'll, I'll hit you with two uh, Frankenstein from the novel creature quotes, Jason. So the first is, I have love in me, the likes of which you can scarcely imagine. 
and rage the likes of which you would not believe. If I cannot satisfy one, I will indulge the other. Wow. So that's quote one. And then the last one, which I think pulls it all together is, listen to me, Frankenstein, you accuse me of murder, and yet you would, with a satisfied conscience, destroy your own creature. Oh, praise the eternal justice of man. (laughs) (laughs) And I would contrast that with the typical understanding of Frankenstein's monster, which came from Saturday Night Live when Phil Hartman played him, and his only line was, fire bad. (laughs) (laughs) So I I guess that's where I I fall down on the side of, uh, I'm going to say stupid on Frankenstein because we've uh, we've perverted it, we've polluted it, we've dumbed it down. Uh, It's essentially the 2020 version of what Mary Shelley intended. So, man, that's a tough one for me because... I want so desperately to agree with you, but the iconic version of Frankenstein's monster, you know, the, the, the Boris Karloff portrayal of Frankenstein, to me, it, like it's ubiquitous, it's meaningful, it's such a staple of American pop culture that I, it's really hard for me to call that one stupid. I would have been down with it if they would have called the movie something else and the character something else. So just ripped off Mary Shelley and then called it something else and made it an original creation. But they didn't. No, that would be awesome, but that would be a counterfactual, counterfactual, it's counterfactual. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, per usual, we've agreed Jason's at uh, Jason's not stupid. I'm stupid. Uh, whoops. All right. I'm going to reel that one back. <laughs> All right. Number two, Jason, let's uh, let's hit Dracula. Okay. This is a All good right. one, too. Okay. Uh, so Dracula, the, well, you, you alluded to this earlier and there's a little contention about this, but credited as the brainchild of Bram Stoker uh, in his 1897 uh, novel, right. Dracula. Uh, so he was, uh, uh, he was an Irish author and that is meaningful because that means that he had a chance to connect with uh, a woman who also lived in Ireland, who was married to a British soldier. And her name was Emily Gerard. And she is one of the folks who's at the party you were talking about That's right. with Lord Byron, who is responsible for writing the the precursor to the Dracula novel, where she talks about uh, Nosferatu. Right. But yeah, which I think is actually the Slavic word for vampire. So this is the creature that in Slavic culture um, that equates to a vampire. Right. So this is, it's sort of the, the conflation of two different stories. There was a historical figure named Vlad Tepish from Romania, uh, who I, I don't even remember how long ago, uh, was this vicious dictator, uh, unless you live in Romania, in which case he was this amazing freedom fighter <laughs> who uh, used to, when he would defeat armies, he would impale them. He was, it was Vlad the Impaler, right? Uh, there were rumors at the time that we, he would drink his enemy's blood and et cetera, et cetera. There were also contemporaneous to the similar time period, uh, these sort of fairy tales or cultural stories of demons that would fly around. Uh, it was like the head of a dead person would come back to life and its entrails would leave the body and it, the head would go around and drink the blood of innocent victims and sustain itself as this undead entity. And those two stories had sort of circulated for a long time. I think that Bram Stoker's contribution to all of this was basically that he put all of these stories together into 
a narrative that became sort of ubiquitous. So I've uh, I've read the Dracula book a couple times. I have some thoughts on it, but I think what we need to do is I need to set the scene a little bit before I tell you why I think this is stupid. Okay. So we we talked about Emily Garrard who uh wrote the wrote the book that inspired Bram Stoker. He was associated or she was associated with uh Bram Stoker and she got the uh, source material for her book after spending uh time in Romania with her husband, who was a British army officer embedded with the Austro-Hungarian army at the time. So this is just prior to World War I breaking out. So I'm going to, I'll read you a quick excerpt uh, that I came across that is thought to have in- influenced Bram Stoker. Um, and this is from her book. And it's a little long, but it's going to set the scene for the point I want to make. So here we go. More decidedly evil is the Nosferatu, or vampire, in which every Romanian peasant believes as firmly as he does in heaven or hell. Every person killed by a Nosferatu becomes likewise a vampire after death and will continue to suck the blood of other innocent persons till the spirit has been exercised by opening the grave of the suspected person, neither driving a stake through the corpse or in a very obstinate cases of vampirism, it is recommended to cut off the head and replace it in the coffin with a mouth filled with garlic. Okay, so this is where I'm going to get metaphorical with you. All right. All right. (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) Okay. So... Emily Gerard was in Romania with her husband, connected to the Austro-Hungarian army just prior to World War I. We've got a lot of racial tensions, obviously, between the UK and uh, the Slavic countries uh, leading, <laughs> leading up to this point. And I mean, I think you see where I'm going. Oh, yeah, I totally do. I'm already there's, smiling and laughing. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's some racial connections here. So yeah, why don't Smiling you, and laughing at the awfulness of it. Yes. Yeah, so give me, <laughs> give me your thoughts on this. And I'm going to point out, because I've actually read the book a couple of times, and I've pulled some things out reading it through this lens uh, that I want to share. So what do you think about the road I'm taking us down? I actually find that really fascinating, because where I was going to go with the conversation next was the changing views of vampires in American popular culture afterwards, like the very first film that you ever see having to do with a vampire was called Nosferatu. And it was back in the silent movie era. And this is not a sexy vampire. Like this thing is a troll, right? Like it's really ugly. It looks like half bat, half man, but with bug eyes. So I don't think what you're insinuating here is at all stupid. I think that that's absolutely probably where this came from. It came from this allusion to racial tensions and trying to sort of denigrate an entire group of people due to, you know, uh, illusion. And it was really trying to run down the enemy in any way possible by dehumanizing. So if you look at the book, and this struck me the first time I read it, the first four paragraphs of the book are all about train schedules. And it's all about this guy who's traveling to Romania and the trains aren't on time. And I had to connect with these people. They're really most closely related to Attila the Hun. And basically all of these things talking about how the culture in the East is barbaric and they can't even get their trains to run on time. So that's that's the scene that the opening like four paragraphs of the book sets. And then in Romania, you encounter the character Dracula, and all he wants to do is get out of Romania and travel to the West to get to the UK where he can infect people and spread the, the vampiric virus, I think is what they call it in the novel. So this is all about, the, we're doing our air quotes here. So this is, <laughs> this is all about this uh, disease that wants to leave the East and come and infect the West. And then ultimately, at the end of the novel, how does the West defeat the East? by utilizing train schedules, right? right? So the group that wants to kill Dracula is able to get ahead of him because they can travel faster than him 
because they understand how to take the train and can get to Transylvania ahead of them. And it's all this metaphor of West versus East. It's essentially Dracula is a propaganda novel. And so that's, I guess that's my problem. No, no, I totally understand. But there are some interesting aspects to it. Like you're right. If you go back and you read the original novel, it's kind of an interesting way to write a story because it's all based on diary entries and newspaper articles and uh, like there's not a like an in the head narrative from a character it's it's just as though somebody had gone through and gathered all the documents and was trying to tell a story but it's all fictional documents which is very interesting in today's atmosphere <laughs> it was basically you know social media before social media existed but more than that the 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 concept of a vampire prior to Bram Stoker and after Bram Stoker it's fascinating to me how radically different that they are. Prior to Bram Stoker, this was a horrible, evil, disgusting demon that was a story that scared people. And after Bram Stoker, it became like, I think you're right. I think that he wrote it in terms of, I don't know what his motivations were when he wrote it, but I think that it was likely interpreted in terms of this anti-Eastern The Huns are coming to get us, prepare for war. Exactly. Yeah. Very nationalistic kind of a a concept. but what you see is over time, like I, I alluded to earlier, this idea that the, you know Nosferatu in the the twenties, I think twenties or thirties, um, shows this vampire that is absolutely unattractive and is totally a monster. And then by the seventies, you've got this very uh, sort of noble vampire who is clearly evil and dangerous, but is charismatic and interesting and hypnotizes people. And then by the nineties, you've got Brad Pitt playing a, <laughs> you've got Tom Cruise as a vampire. And then you know, by the two thousands, we're into Twilight, where it's like a tween romance comedy. Like it, it's 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 fascinating to watch how it has evolved across U.S. culture or American or Western culture. All of that said, I kind of agree with you. Like, because it appeals to each group at a different time in a different way. Everyone appropriates it for their own purposes. At a certain point, like, uh, and I know that there will be arguments where this backfires me on me, but because of that, I think that I agree with you that this one's stupid. And I I want to give credit where credit's due. And first of all, thank you for agreeing (laughs) with me, Jason. This is a a genuinely creepy book. Oh, like yeah. if you get if you get the chance re- read the book when when Jason describes sort of the second iteration of Dracula being charismatic or having power over other people that is Bram Stoker's Dracula and I remember seeing early on that when I read it the first time I was like that is messed up. So there are he he has three uh, minion vampires that want to essentially eat uh, the guy who he has lured to Romania to help him relocate to London, and he wants to placate the uh, succubuses. Yeah, there are three so, women who are vampires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he steals a, a baby from a woman in the village and feeds the baby to the three succubuses, so they will they'll basically leave the other guy alone. Right. And the the woman, uh, the the baby's mother, comes to his can- his castle in Transylvania and just howls at the door and begs her to kill her too until he comes out and does it. And I was just like, who thinks this up? I mean, this stuff is awful. So there, there's some really creepy moments in the book. Uh, he kills uh, so many people, it's just way too many to count. Right. So to your point that like... Jason, I feel like you missed that. Way too many to count. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> one, one dead. Anyways. Um, but yeah, to your point, like for somebody who's trying to portray a culture in a negative way, or if if that's what 
Bram Stoker's uh, goal was, was to try and portray some culture in, an, in some very dark way. You're exactly right. If you read what he's portraying, like it says way more about him. All right. Well, uh, there we go. We're uh, one in opposition and uh, one in agreement. So we both agree. Dracula, stupid. Yep. All right. Well, next we have uh, werewolves. You want to yeah. tackle this one next? All right. Um, so the werewolf one is tricky. So I tried to figure out what the origin of werewolves was. So there are there is the, I guess, persisting legend over time of werewolves. And then there's Hollywood werewolves as we know them. And then there's uh, Michael J. Scott werewolves. So <laughs> sure, right. we, we've got to understand the full evolution. So the um, origin of werewolf or werewolf mythology. You're going to want to go back. Michael J. Fox. What did I say? Michael J. Scott. Michael J. Scott. That's uh, the <laughs> office versus the uh, fictional deputy mayor of New York. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the oldest reference to werewolves that I could come across was 2100 BC, and it actually makes it into the Epic of Gilgamesh, which, which influences mythology and popular culture in Greece and Rome. That's where it really gets going. And the werewolf as we know it today and where we get the, the lichen, the, the Greek phenom that goes with it that's associated with wolf and translates into the word that I think people use in, uh, what is the the Underworld movies? That's the name they give to them. Right, which is short for lycanthrope. Right, yeah. right which comes from uh, the mythical Greek king Lycan, who's said to have uh, tested Zeus's divinity by uh, feeding him a child. So basically <laughs> grinding it up and putting it in his porridge. <laughs> and uh, when Zeus found out about it, he was uh, pretty upset. So he killed 50 of the king's sons and then cursed him uh, and turned him into a wolf. Who has 50 sons? Uh, well, <laughs> life was good uh, for the 1% in ancient Greece, Jason. Good to be the king. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's where we get the origin of the of the werewolf mythology. But what we're really talking about is the mainstream Hollywood werewolf. That really gained traction uh, in the Universal Studios Werewolf of London, 1935. So that was the first movie that came out. Uh, um, <laughs> werewolves of... Sorry. <laughs> so you were... I think you were in high school then, Jason. So tell me... Yeah, oh, what, no, what's was, the deal I, with that I, movie? I was like 10 years into my career at that point. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to dig into with the werewolf mythology, but the thing I want to point out at the onset before I get your thoughts on the werewolf, Jason, is that I just want to point out the werewolf movie came out following the Dracula movie, the Frankenstein movie, the mummy movie, and the Invisible Man movie. So for me, this is like, you know, the ninth offshoot Avengers movie. It's just trying to ride the wave, but I want to hear what you think. (laughs) Well, what's fascinating to me is everybody thinks of the werewolf as one of the universal mo- monsters, but it's actually not the werewolf. It's the wolf man. The wolf man. That is true. Right. It is called the wolf man. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think that there's a big difference. Like if you watch uh, an American werewolf in London, that's an amazing werewolf story, but that's, that harkens back to the legends having to do with changelings and this idea. And that idea uh, goes back centuries. And it's this idea that there are like, fairies in the woods that can change into other creatures and you know you could you you saw not just people that could change into wolves but into bears or into panthers or into birds or into like or if your baby died you could take it out into the woods and leave it and then the changelings would take it right right and it would go live with the fairies right 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 yeah. so or if you didn't like your wife you could say the change changelings <laughs> have taken her then you could set her on fire <laughs> yeah but, you know in a civilized age <laughs> what the hell? 
not not like those barbaric uh, Western Europe or Eastern Europeans, right? Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But the idea of a wolf man, I think, is a, is slightly different. I think that comes from sort of the circus atmosphere, the Barnum and Bailey's of the world, the Ringling Brothers of the world. This idea that there was somebody who would be half man and half wolf, when in fact it had to do with uh, you know a genetic issue in which somebody grew hair all over their body as opposed to just where most of us grow hair on our bodies. But I think that the the, the concept of the Wolfman uh, conflated these two different stories. And I agree with you. I think it was to a certain degree kind of a money grab. What's the next monster we can come up with? And this was an interesting way to right. uh, bring about a story where, you know, on a full moon, this guy turns into a wolf and he goes and he does crazy stuff and kills people. And actually, I don't even know that. Does he kill people in the movie? I think he just terrorizes them. I can't remember if there are actually deaths in the well, film. This is my problem with it. This is why it's so stupid. <laughs> so not only was it a cash grab, I'm glad that you agree with me about that, but it's literally the worst monster on right. the list because it's essentially just a bear, right? Like all the other monsters have like a paranormal element to them. Like, the wolf man is like half wolf, half man. Like, cool. Like any like hunter can go take him down. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's a bear, but he's a weak bear. I, I right? mean, I don't even find it scary. I mean, we could overcome him with a few locked doors and I, I don't know, a rudimentary Stone Age weapon. You, you could right. kill him. No, again, so from the concept of an actual werewolf and a movie like An American Werewolf in London, that's one of the best horror films I've ever seen. I want to give that movie credit too for the the time lapse. I don't know if that's the first time lapse done in a movie, but certainly like probably, I mean, one of the most iconic. Yeah, the, the, the effects in it, even though it was done in the early 80s, like they still pretty well, like that movie still kind of creeps me out, even though you can look at it and go, oh, well, that's a special effect. It, it but, was, yeah, it was Nintendo 64, like in the age of Sega Genesis. Right, right. Yeah, yeah it was, it, it's a really well done film. Um, that said, I agree with you. The Universal Pictures version of the Wolfman, I find kind of stupid. But not the Michael J. Fox version. Well, no. I mean, shit, that just rocks. If you've got a guy in high school who suddenly finds out his dad was a werewolf and every full moon once he hits puberty, he like can surf on the top of a car. And dunk. <laughs> dunk. Yeah. When the he's a amazing, five foot four yeah, white guy. That's yeah. what I was about to say. The most amazing thing about that movie is that Michael J. Fox dunked. <laughs> All right, so werewolf, stupid or not stupid? I got to go with stupid. Stupid, okay. All right, well, this is this is what I'm going to do now, Jason. Uh, I I do the yeoman's work of this podcast, basically do all the prep, keep the conversation moving, and carry your ass. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't do any of that for Mummy. So Mummy, <laughs> all you, man. So uh, what do you got for me on Mummy? So the Mummy is a weird one to have ended up as a movie monster to begin with. I mean, mummies are a real thing, right? Like ancient in ancient Egypt, the religious beliefs of the time involved the, the idea that your physicality moved on to another plane of existence and you had to be prepared correctly to move on to the next life. And for the top 1%. These are all 1%. Of course. Issues. No, no. Yeah. The average person, like when they died, like somebody probably kicked them in the river and just, but yeah, for the pharaohs who were considered, you know, basically divine or even, you know, high priests or people of note, as you say, the 1%, the, like a huge portion of the economy of this culture revolved around this sort of death cult. And I think that an awful lot of people in that time period, you know, were involved in building pyramids and creating artwork, but the centralized government paid them to do it. 
shit, man, you know, as long as we've got enough food to eat and I'm getting money for my family. Yeah. All right. He's divine. Let's build the thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But pretty much didn't didn't they kill all the people who worked on a lot of the uh, tomb projects at the conclusion? Um, some of them did in the later years because of the the recognition that if you're going to bury all of the guy's wealth, somebody's probably going to come get it. So <laughs> if if lots of people know where that wealth is, eh, that's probably where your security leak is, right? But I think that that happened later in the process. Uh, but the idea of mummification had to do with preparing the body to the move you know, for the move to the, the 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 next plane of existence. It didn't really become an issue until the late 1800s, early 1900s, when Western explorers ended up in Egypt trying to look for these tombs, partially for the riches, but partially for the, uh, at the time, it wasn't like historical documentation. They weren't interested in trying to figure out what had happened in history. It was about sensationalism. These were not professional historians or professional archaeologists. These were rich people who were bored and had a lot of money. And- well, even prior to that, there's a whole rabbit hole we can go down. Uh, and I think it's connected to our episode, which will never be released on the American Revolution. But- <laughs> This was also uh, Napoleon's entire pretext for invading Egypt, right? So he said, oh, this is a scientific expedition. I'm, I'm going to recover historic artifacts. Right, right, right. So I think that the, the Hollywood fascination with the mummy really started with the- Don't say Brendan Fraser. No, 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 no. That's much later and unfortunate. Uh, it really started with the discovery of the, the tomb of King Tutankhamun or uh, King Tut, as Steve Martin used to say. You said toot. <laughs> <laughs> by, a guy named, by a guy named Howard Carter, who was one of these rich guys with nothing better to do. So he went to Egypt and he spent a ton of money on hiring scientists and a bunch of people uh, like diggers from Egypt to come and sort of go out in the desert and try and locate some some form of riches or uh, some historically interesting thing uh, under the the many uh, pyramids in Egypt. When that happened, there were a couple of unusual circumstances that resulted in the deaths of I think there were like 50, 58 people who were who entered the tomb when it was uncovered, and something like eleven of them died within the next year or two, one to five years. I don't remember exactly what the deal was. And this was these were supposedly under suspicious circumstances, and the media ran with this idea of a curse of the the mummy, a curse of these tombs. And there's some basis, in fact, that there are lots of curses written in lots of Egyptian tombs, but it was a way to try and dissuade tomb robbers from ransacking these tombs after these people were buried. The idea that a couple of people had died in relative close proximity to their discovery of this tomb led to a very sensationalistic description of what had occurred. And somewhere along the way, Hollywood picked up on this and turned it into a movie having to do with a mummy and like somebody discovering the mummy. And there was a curse that brought the mummy back to life. And the mummy was trying to uh, find its lost love. And there's a, a woman who kind of looks like his lost love from centuries before and hijinks ensue, right? Like it, uh, the, the rest of the details are really not that important. But what's fascinating to me about this story is this is basically actual fake news turning into fiction that then becomes uh, sort of a staple of popular culture. It's kind of like the Mueller investigation. <laughs> Exactly the opposite. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I 
like I said, uh, I think we outlined the specifications for either being stupid or culturally appropriated myth in the service of expanding October GDP in the United States. So I'm going uh, stupid on on the mummy personally. Yeah. Uh, and unlike some of the other things that we've talked about, as these various monsters have progressed through popular culture that we're, we've been talking about, they tend to take more and more interesting pathways. And they, they, you know people try to appropriate the characters to tell different stories. And with the mummy, it's been pretty li- linear and really awful. <laughs> and even the original story was about the curse of the mummy. It's not like the mummy reanimated and came back and killed a bunch of people. That was never part of the the original fake news anyway. No, that was later. Right. Yeah. That the thing actually wakes up and comes after you itself as opposed to just like killing you magically in its death. Yeah. Thanks again, Brendan Fraser. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think we have once again hit one that we agree both. Yeah, it's stupid. It's stupid. Stupid. Okay, we're really narrowing down our Halloween costume options right. for the year, Jason. All right, well, let's get to, let's get to one more, and it's another one I'm going to lean on you for because, again, uh, you know, I was still a, a bad idea in the back of my parents' mind when this came out, <laughs> so I know you were going strong. So uh, 1954, a new movie comes out with a new creature, an original concept, The Creature from the Black Lagoon. This one is fascinating to me because, first of all, it makes no sense that it's on the list. Right, like, I, I was thinking that too. When you originally threw that out there, so you listed off to me, hey, here's yeah. the ones we should do. Then you said Creature from the Black Lagoon. And I was like, I, that's a thing, I guess. Right. Yeah. So uh, it was very, very popular in its day, but it does not at all have the, the, the staying power, I think, of the other four monsters that we've been talking about. In fact, I think it has less staying power. To, I think you could argue it has less staying power than The Phantom of the Opera or The Invisible Man. That said, there was a movie that came out a couple of years ago called The Shape of Water that was basically a retelling of the, the creature from the Black Lagoon in a very interesting way that won an Academy Award. So like, clearly the story is still relevant. It's just it's such an outlier compared to the other four monsters. I find it unusual. The premise of this monster is that there is there was an evolutionary species that developed that we have been unaware of for our entire existence uh kind of like a zelacanth or some you know like a sasquatch or like, like no 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 because this one's real <laughs> there's this uh humanoid fish creature that has existed for a very very long time uh these explorers in the jungle go and they they uh, accidentally run into this creature. Uh, my recollection is in the movie, it's supposed to be like in South America, like in the Amazon or something. In fact, it was filmed at a place called Silver Springs in Florida, which is a great location. I've been there. The springs are beautiful. But the idea that it's a black lagoon, in order to film it underwater, the water is crystal clear for like 50 feet, right? Like it's the the concept of a black lagoon is very uh, contrary to what the actual location is. I don't know a lot about this movie. I do know the jungle scenes that they filmed where they show the actual setting for the lagoon is the same lagoon they use for Gilligan's Island. Right. So that's where it really was, Jason. (laughs) But the the thing that really bothers me about this entire premise is that these scientists go in search of this creature that isn't supposed to exist. And the creature ends up uh, fascinated and in love with the one woman in their party, despite the fact that it's a fish that's evolved completely separately from our species, but finds the woman beautiful. And the rest of the team uh, basically is trying to combat the creature from stealing their woman 
and you know like one guy on the team wants to capture the creature and the other one just wants to leave it alone and get the hell out and you know the guy who wants to capture it is evil and the creature ends up killing him and you know it's oh spoilers bro i told you i hadn't seen it <laughs> yeah well it's all pretty predictable if you watch the film like you know what's going to happen but it's sort of reminiscent of like king kong right like this idea that some abnormal creature out in the wild that represents wilderness and all this you know the the absence of civilization the this the, the other from humanity but is fascinated by our women like it's, <laughs> it's really kind of a disturbing story in so many ways so i'm going to i'm going to knock the concept of creature of the black lagoon for the same reason that i knock some of the other ones it's the last one chronologically to appear so this is the last movie to come out in all the movies that we've listed it's a shameless attempt to to tack on it went straight to 3d so it was like oh, the last right. grasp of 3d yep. so all of those reasons make me lean towards stupid with it but i'm going not stupid with this one and i'll tell you why number 1 original monster so it's not ripping anything off. So I think that's awesome. Number two, uh, the actors in this movie uh, are badass. So there are two actors, one that plays the creature when it's on land and one that plays the creature when it's in, in the water. And the, the director for the film felt very strongly that the creature had evolved to a point where it obviously had gills. So you wouldn't see any bubbles coming out when it was breathing. That meant the actor who played the creature under the water was not allowed to have access to an oxygen tank. So he had to hold his breath for four minute spurts, which I think is bad ass. So points to the creature just on, on that alone. And then third, I got to say, the thing that I love most about the creature from the Black Lagoon is this the sheer hypocrisy uh, that it uh, shines a light on for you, Jason, because you are on the record on this very podcast saying that mermaids don't exist. And here you are with great enthusiasm discussing the realistic aspects of the creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think mermen or mermaids is one thing, but ichthyosapiens is a whole different issue. I think that this, actual, this uh, particular monster, from a story standpoint, is very interesting to me because it it, as you say, it's an original creature. It doesn't come from other mythologies. It doesn't come from a different time period that was, it wasn't written about uh, to dictate uh, a particular political ideology. Or right. It's just pure monster. It is. But since that time, it has been adopted and adapted by many people to turn it into this creature Again, the the concept of this movie, uh, The Shape of Water, that was directed by Guillermo del, del Toro, that story is fascinating because it turns that story on its head. Uh, it's about the government having captured this creature who has no interest in humanity, and it's the woman who falls in love with the creature as opposed to the other way around. All I want to do right now is play the clip of our guest from our Bigfoot Mermaids episode where he says, Mermaids are not stupid, and I'm not talking about your... <laughs> You know, you're you're having your little Caribbean luau under the sea, and they're all wearing coconut bras, and you got these hot redheads swimming around with flounder. It's it's not like that. But I'm talking about a half human, half fish type character that the government covers up. <laughs> right. The difference is this is completely fiction. It's it's the best of science fiction in that it's pointing a lens on our culture using things that don't happen, as opposed to believing that these things actually exist, which is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to give you my, I, I, I'm going to tack on two more final reasons why I think this monster isn't stupid. 
first of all, is that that I finally found a use for all the uh, Latin that I learned in high school for some reason. So I understood the term ichthyo sapien. Uh, so that was great. I, I never thought I'd be able to put that to use. And second of all, I, I guess this last one's twofold for me. This taps in to, I think, a universal fear that all of us have when we enter the water. And that's that creepy feeling you get when you can't see what's under the water, but you feel something touch you. Oh, yeah. And talking about it makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And I think that's universal across all of us. So do you mean universal or do you mean universal studio? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It taps into a universal studio's fear. (laughs) But also, I know that that fear is especially pronounced in you, Jason, because we have a long established standard on the podcast of you being afraid of water and hating all things associated with water. So it makes me like this creature even more. And actually, it makes me like the creature even more because it makes it scarier to me. But the other thing is you look at the five faces of the creatures that we've been talking about. You look at Dracula, you look at the mummy, you look at the, the wolfman, you look at Frankenstein, and you look at the creature from the Black Lagoon. Of those five, the only one that's cool, that's really kind of creepy and scary, is the creature from the Black Lagoon. I'm all in on this. All right. <laughs> Black Lagoon, not stupid. I agree. I, I, I think the creature is not stupid. Well, what do you got, Jason? Do you have any honorable mentions you want to tack on? Any other... Uh... Halloween costumes we need to ruin for listeners out there or <laughs> where yet? So uh, there's a, a whole giant spectrum of, of monsters that we could talk about. And I'm hoping that we're, st- well, actually, I'm hoping we're not still doing this by next Halloween. <laughs> the plan was to do this as long as uh, we, we were locked down because of the current circumstance. So I'm hoping that we don't do another Halloween episode. But if we do, I would want to get into the 19, you know, Jason from- Yeah, the, the pinnacle of horror movie yeah, monsters. The, the Freddy Kruegers, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, we'll, we'll put it on the calendar. So um, look, I got to be honest with you all. Uh, this episode was a nightmare, but in mine and Jason's defense, uh, we had some we had some bad crab right before we started <laughs> Also, uh, one thing, uh, I guess we could have saved this for We're Stupid, but uh, I can't believe we didn't mention this, Eyes of the Werewolf. Um, this is our our, pot, our parting gift to all of you listeners. If you haven't watched Eyes of the Werewolf, it's probably on YouTube. Go ahead and check that out. It's the ultimate evolution of the uh, werewolf monster. It is the pinnacle of werewolf <laughs> mythology. It is the best horse movie you will ever see. <laughs> They did the monster. They did the mash. It was a graveyard smash. They did the mash. It caught on like a fly. They did the mash. They did the monster mash. Oh.